Hello and welcome to our podcast. We're calling it The Hunch because we believe you get the best ideas from people when they're relaxed, when they're with friends. And rather than giving you the corporate line, they give you their best guess, their gut feeling, their hunch. I'm Mark Schmid, and in each episode, I'll be talking to someone who can give us the lowdown on something that will transform their sector, our society, or even our everyday lives. For today's episode, with COP26 upon us, our focus is on a net zero future. And I know someone who might just have a hunch about that. Welcome, Matt Bird, CEO of Supercritical. Thanks for coming along. Thank you very much for having me here, Mark. It's good to see you again. We worked together quite a long while ago in um, telecoms. We were all about super fast broadband. Now you're going to be talking to us today about electrodizers, green hydrogen, net zero. Quite a journey. Tell us about your career to date. It's been quite a change, hasn't it, really? So, yeah, we, we've both worked in sort of the telecoms and that background and whether it was routers and, you know, fibre and all those sort of conversations. And I've gone back to my kind of roots as how I started my career, which is startups. So I, I consciously left that telecoms world back in, what was it, 2016? And I wanted, I wanted to... Um, I want to have more purpose, put more purpose in what I was actually doing rather than just telecoms. Um, so, And part of that was getting out into startups and having a sort of bit more control of what I was doing. And left left in 2016 and um, went to a new startup, managed to build that up over three years, um, successful sort of multi-million pound sort of business and sold it. And then that left me in a nice position thinking, well, what do you do next? You know, if you've got, if you want to do a real sort of purpose here and want to do something, what, you know, what, what on earth? I mean, the world is your oyster and what you could look at. And the energy transition was something that I spotted. There's something that was, you know, very interesting, uh, interesting from both a commercial sense, but also coming back to that real purpose of wanting to make a difference. And so looking within that world and trying to spot the right opportunity. And then I came across a company called Deep Science Ventures. And they are a venture builder. So they don't invest in other people's ideas. They have a school of scientists, a PhD scientists, loads of them. And they look at some of the world's biggest problems and therefore opportunities. And within the energy sector, they'd identified that clean hydrogen, if you could produce it cost effectively, could make a real difference in terms of the environmental impact. And then they come up with some ideas on how they could do that. And then they formed a team around that idea. And that's when I got involved. And that's where my background comes in. So I'm not a scientist. You know, Supercritical has three scientists in the team. We've got three PhDs. Uh, none of them are mine. Um, but, you know, as a team, we augment and cl- you know, collaborate and work together very well to you know, form Supercritical. And Supercritical isn't just a clever name that denotes the importance of you guys and what you're doing. There's actually some science behind that, isn't there? Absolutely. And I, I, I will confess, to, just to me and you here, no one else listening, <laughs> but I'll confess, I'll confess to you now that I, I wasn't aware that water had a fourth state. So I remember from school that, you know, it's either, you know, solid, liquid or a gas. And it's, it's, that's, that's, that's water. We all know it in those three different states. But there's actually a fourth state, which is called supercritical. And it's a very special sort of state where the properties are mixture between a gas and a liquid and it has certain characteristics and on its own that's fine that's what it is a scientific state however what we do as a company is we're able to operate our technology under supercritical conditions 
and we're able to then gain and take advantage of some of the benefits in that. And we take water and we split that into its two parts, oxygen and hydrogen, but we do it in a supercritical state. So um, confessions are, I didn't actually know that before we started this role. As I said, I'm not the scientist in the in the team, um, but by identify opportunities by operating slightly differently, we can make a real difference in the technology. And yeah, cards on the table. I think a lot of us are reading, learning as we go. Obviously, COP26 around the corner, very close now. And so there's terminology that we're seeing on, on the news and the articles we read. And uh, often the distinctions uh, aren't clear to me. So you mentioned um, right at the top, Matt, about clean hydrogen or maybe green hydrogen, but you made a distinction. So how many different types of hydrogen are there? There's a whole rainbow of colours, and colours are just a simple way of trying to describe the differences. The problem is, the more than you, the second you've got more than sort of two or three different variations, it, it becomes very confusing again. So you, you're kind of trying to use something simple to explain it, and then it gets complicated. But if you think about, so hydrogen as an energy source, there's there's over 70 million tons of it produced every single year today, but all of that is coming from fossil fuels. And so that's either a grey or a brown. It doesn't matter. So it's a fossil hydrogen. It is produced by taking fossil fuels, going through a process and producing the hydrogen. But as a process, it's, it's dirty. It actually emits more than 10 times the amount of CO2 in its production than it actually produces in hydrogen. So as a whole, that's over well, 742 million tonnes of carbon dioxide emitted just from the production of that hydrogen that is used today. That's, that's, that's pretty much the same as the entire airline industry. So as a process, as a sector, there's an opportunity within the existing uses of that hydrogen. And so what I, I call that sort of like fossil hydrogen. It's, it's grey um, hydrogen. That's where 95% uh, of the world's hydrogen that's produced is formed from those fossil fuels. Um, we talk about green. Green for me is absolutely, there it has to be zero carbon used. So if you can produce hydrogen and um, use zero or emit zero carbon um, in its production, it becomes green and clean. Um, it's, it's two different sort of exactly the same thing in terminology. But there are other colors as well. So, you know, in the production of hydrogen, you can still use fossil fuels. But what if you capture that carbon in the process? And carbon capture in that sort of perspective, it's about 95% efficient, but significantly better than, than obviously just letting it vent into the atmosphere. That's known as blue hydrogen. Um, I don't know who made up the colours and why they particularly picked on certain colours. Um, and there's different colours and you know, for things like if you're producing hydrogen using nuclear power. You know, that's not emitting carbon, but it's not exactly renewable. So therefore, it has a different colour and classification. Um, there is a rainbow of different colours, mm. as I said, in terms of, the, the, of hydrogen. For me, the only long-term answer, it has to be clean, zero-carbon, green hydrogen. And is that something you can produce today or is that an idea a plan and an aspiration no it absolutely can be produced today so roughly about say four or five percent of the world's hydrogen that's produced today is from clean sources um, the clean green hydrogen um, they use technology called electrolyzers and they take water h2o and you apply renewable energy and you split it into oxygen and hydrogen the reason why 
hydrogen isn't hasn't been uh, traditionally sort of produced with sort of clean uh, green hydrogen is because traditional technology is inefficient and so one of the ideas that how supercritical was born is that could you do it differently could you produce hydrogen how it's needed and by that i mean that it needs to be compressed you know hydrogen is the universe's lightest element and for it to be useful in nine out of ten applications you want to compress it to it so it takes up less space so you've got to kind of think about as a process, how do you draw the lines wider? How do you, in terms of it's actually usable? So can you produce hydrogen at pressure at a level of efficiency not seen anywhere before? And so what, that's what supercritical does. So by operating in water's fourth state, supercritical, so we pump water at the beginning of the process. Um, pumping has been done for thousands of years and we can create pressure that way and um, it's far more efficient. So it's cheaper, more efficient, and we can actually compress water. We then heat it to over 375 degrees C. That's a very magical point because that's when it ceases to become water and it goes from a liquid state and directly into its fourth state, supercritical. That's an important number, Matt. Let me write that down. What's the, what's the temperature? So <laughs> we need to be at least 375 degrees C. And the pumping, that pressure that we put it under, it needs to be more than 221 bar of pressure. So bar being so you know, equivalent being loose, loosely defined as, you know, one bar is where we're one atmosphere. It's where we live today in sort of the normal world. And if you push that to press it down over 200 times, you're getting into that 221 bar sort of level and 375 degrees C. And then water ceases to become splish blosh of the stuff that we take a bath in and goes into a supercritical phase. That's the point that we then take it into our electrolyzer and we perform electrolysis using renewable energy. And the key benefits is that the outputs, the oxygen and the hydrogen that we separate in our electrolyzer, they get delivered at pressure. And so that means we, we're delivering them at over 200 bar of output pressure. No other technology does this today. And normally what you do is you then take atmospheric pressure uh, gases, our oxygen and hydrogen, and you put it into another process, the gas compressors. Those gas compressors are expensive to run, they're unreliable, and they're expensive. And if we can eliminate those completely, you're actually delivering products exactly how your future customers and you know, need to use it. And if you look at the existing users of hydrogen, one of the biggest users of hydrogen today is the ammonia process. Uh, most of ammonia goes into fertilizers, so the food we eat. And that process operates at 200 bar. So supercritical is able to deliver the hydrogen that the ammonia process needs at exactly the pressure it needs, eliminating all of those real complex and expensive gas compressors. And we're able to do it at a level of efficiency not seen by any of the existing technologies. We've only recently, uh, most of us at least, come to appreciate um, ammonia, fertilizer, CO2, food production. Uh, and so all of these things link together, don't they? The, the, the whole world, given this, the transition that we need to go through, and we're now becoming more educated as normal users when we see the impact from energy systems and how certain byproducts are used in another. So you could talk about circular economy. You could talk about the entire ecosystem. There is a balance to all of this, and the energy transition is starting to show signs of how that balance interrupts different sectors and different areas. And we've we've certainly seen recently the um, natural gas price. So the natural gas price has gone really, really high, and that's impacting both industrial users, which will go on to manufacturing. Um, it's, yeah, and then we're seeing the knock-on impact to the ammonia process, where one of the existing byproducts is 
carbon dioxide, which rather ironically we're trying to reduce and take out of the air, but then suddenly we find that we haven't got enough of it. There is an answer in all of this. And so we need to jump forward sort of 5, 10, 15, even 20 years time where actually there's a new balance and a new balance where we're not dependent on the Earth's um, resources like fossil fuels and using those, but we're actually able to reuse a new balance and pattern or different sort of elements so that all of the sectors can work and be cost effective and hopefully far more stable. And what are the sectors which you're particularly targeting, the industries that are... You know, heavy users and and could make a a tangible difference towards net zero. Yeah, so I think the um, for supercritical, there's sort of the primary sort of customers who are going to do this is the existing you know the existing users of hydrogen. So think of the um, petrochemical or the ammonia, the the chemical sort of industry. Those are the people that use hydrogen today, but they say they're getting it from fossil fuels, fossil hydrogen. If we can replace that, we're actually going to make a significant change. So over 700 million tonnes of carbon dioxide reduced just from producing it cleanly. That's our primary sort of customers, existing market. But there's a secondary set of customers as well, which we, we classify as we call it industrial heat. So this is basically industrial processes, manufacturing, for example. Manufacturing as a whole in the world is about 31% of the world's CO2 emissions. And some of this, within that manufacturing, there's a whole sector of people who... They, they need heat as part of their process. And so anyone who needs sort of medium to high levels of heat, and th- for that, think about glass manufacturing, steel, mm. um, slightly different reasons, things like cement, but even some of the food and drink sort of sectors, those are sectors that use heat in their process. All of them are using fossil fuels today. All of them are emitting carbon dioxide in the production of whatever it is they're making. You know, from a transition perspective and from our sort of customer focus is if we can... If we can produce hydrogen, clean hydrogen that can replace those fossil fuels, we can eliminate the carbon dioxide in the production of whatever it is they're making. So our secondary sort of interest is that one. There's probably a, a tertiary sort of uh, market where we look at um, transportation. So transportation is about 16% of the world's CO2 emissions. Um, we know that there's a big sort of evolution going on right now. You know, you see more and more battery-based EVs on the roads. Um, personally, I believe that is the right answer because of the distance and travel and activities of so batteries, I think is the right answer for, for cars. But the weight of those batteries, when you start thinking about trucks and buses, so the second the vehicle gets bigger and the payload, whether it's people or goods, you know, gets heavier, there's an equation between the sort of the, the bigger the batteries you need to move that amount of weight around and the weight of the batteries, suddenly you need even bigger batteries to carry that around. So there's there's a tipping point where it doesn't make sense. And that's where I think hydrogen can actually play a significant role. So hydrogen-based um, trucks, buses, so longer distance sort of buses, and then you start going into things like shipping. So transportation is kind of like a, a tertiary sort of um, focus area for us. But the first first and foremost, it's absolutely the, the existing biggest users of hydrogen today, those chemical users. And if, you, if you're selling this to the heavy industries, people producing steel and glass, are you able to say that once you're able to produce at scale, the green hydrogen will be a similar price to fossil hydrogen. I think that the, the, the equation isn't so much fossil hydrogen versus green hydrogen. So a lot of the industrial users, they're not using hydrogen. So they are using natural gas, LPG, um, heavy oil. So they're, they're using traditional fossil fuels, should we say, for their production and their processes. So in some respects, it's actually a harder equation for us is that we actually need to be find a way and have a path to 
being at least the same price as things as natural gas. Now, six months ago, natural gas was really cheap. And therefore, that, that was a real hard sort of equation um, in terms of actually when, when was going to be the break-even point. We believe that we could actually be break-even for natural gas by about 2030. So not too far away, certainly in advance of the 2050 sort of net zero sort of target. So we can see that even the finance teams can get comfortable with switching sort of fuels to a zero carbon equivalent when it's going to cost the same as the fossil fuels they're using today. Mm. But we've all seen quite recently is that that natural gas price is highly volatile. And, you know, we've seen it, you know, triple, quadruple in price in terms of wholesale sort of level. And then so suddenly that that break even point of between the two comes a lot closer. Mm. We've also, as you said earlier on this sort of podcast, you know, we've got COP26 coming up. There's going to be a lot of talk about carbon taxes. So industrial users are now looking at this going, our customers actually want green products. There's probably a window where they can maybe to charge a bit more for that premium of a green product. But longer term, they're looking at it and going, my existing fossil fuels are getting more expensive. Carbon taxes are, do exist and are going to get bigger. And so all I can see is my cost base is going to get higher and higher and higher. We need an alternative. So they're already looking for, we're already exploring different options. What is my viable alternative to use? And so clean green hydrogen, which is, although at the moment is more expensive than natural gas, we're predicting a view where it can be sort of cost neutral based on you know, predicted sort of levels by 2030. Clearly, the market for this is global. When you look at developing economies at different paces, different standards of living in those, in, in those countries, are you confident that there are enough incentives, regulations, frameworks in place currently to push certain countries to adopt green hydrogen? I think I think the the pressures and the needs are the same. I think what we do need obviously is technology to advance. So there's a lot about any technology in any any conversation, there's a timing window where that technology needs to mature and you need scale. So I think if you look at globally, there will be certain countries. So if you think of, in the case of hydrogen, so I think um, Australia, Japan, um, you know, Europe and uh, North America, that those are the kind of leading countries, if you like, who do have the right regimes and regulatory or getting better at least in terms of direction. So those are the people that will help advance the technology that will that will help the scaling, that will reduce the costs. And then the rest of the world will be able to take advantage. So what's kind of stopping us uh, on the road to a kind of zero carbon future, you know, w- would you say currently? Is it a lack of desire in certain areas? Is it is it a funding issue? Is it a skills gap? Or, or as you kind of were talking to there, is it is it just that the technology doesn't exist today in some cases? I've, I've seen, and maybe my seat's slightly because obviously I feel like I'm very much within that now and I've transitioned out of the technology the uh, telecoms world and I've been in the sort of the energy transition world for the last sort of year and a half um things have changed a lot so even when I first started this journey or when we first started supercritical funding was a challenge um the people that were willing to invest in big unknown green technologies the, the number of investors was was a smaller pool but we've seen that Changed significantly. So even in the last, you know, within the last few months, the number of investment funds that are very focused on only investing in green technologies or green energy-based, you know, transitional sort of technologies, um, 
there's actually a significant amount of choice out there now. So I would say that funding has already gone past that tipping point and that funding is available for the right ideas with the right team, et cetera, et cetera. So I think funding was a problem, is less of a problem. Um, governments are getting behind it. So I think government funding, um, we've, we as Supercritical have done actually very well from that sort of um, perspective. We've been very successful in our government grants that we've applied for. Um, we, we've won six out of every, well, every single one that we've applied for. Um, so we've been highly successful on that one, but the funding is available. The secondary part thing you mentioned there, so you know, you've rightly said things like skills. There is a transition. And so I think there is a window of training and opportunity for people who are in, so we'll say, traditional fossil fuel production, you know, exploration, processing to transition to that green energy world, that renewable world of energy. We're also seeing a lot of new companies sort of step up into that renewable world as well and sucking in sort of skills and resources. So I think skills can exist, but we are in a window of retraining, re-education and bringing up younger sort of people with those sort of opportunities. So I think that the, again, I feel optimistic, should we say, maybe I'm just too much of an optimist, but I feel optimistic that the actual people and the skills um, can be there. From a technology perspective, however, you know, I, I believe that the technologies that will solve, you know, the 2050 sort of net zero targets are not available right now to buy. And therefore, those technologies are in the lab. They are the very young companies. So we need to be able to support and incubate those young companies. And I say, if the funding is there to help them on that journey, it's about how do we go faster? Because we need those solutions to exit the lab and go into scaled solutions, go into pilots and actually become commercial sort of products. And there's probably another stage even before that where some of the best ideas are in people's heads and they haven't even got into a lab yet. And how do we accelerate those? Because everything needs to change. I think any, when you change your energy system, the energy transition will go away from fossil fuels into truly renewable sources. Everything we know and everything we touch on a daily basis will have to be different. And so if you jump forward 10, 15, 20 years, maybe that's long enough for people to get their heads sort of out, out of the day to day. Um, everything that we touch in terms of food production, materials we think that we buy, the products we buy, how we heat our home, how we heat hot water, everything is going to be different. And I don't think we've quite got our head around that yet, but the technologies to do that, they're still in the lab. And is it going to be public or private investment intervention, which is, is going to fuel most of these new technologies? I think the... Um, the problem with sort of private money is that it's very risk adverse, despite what people say. So VCs, you know, VCs, you know, they love to sort of say how they they love risk and they love to sort of invest in these ideas. But then you go through the process and they like to see everything de-risked before they put the money in. So it's kind of it's not quite right. What where governments have a role is to support those very young companies where the risks are the highest. And so to actually, so I think there's a transition. So I don't think it's a one size fits all on any of this. So I think the, the government's role is to uh, help set a path, help develop markets, and to really support those very, very high risk young companies where the technology has yet to be proven and progressed. I think that there's a middle sort of stage where the sort of the private money is very willing and able to step in. And then even behind that, if you think about some of the you know, even larger money and funds and activity, there's a different set of investors. They're very willing and able, because, but they need technology that is literally done at that point. You need to be baked and ready from a technology perspective before they come in. So 
each of the different stages of commercializing and advancing technology has a different player and different roles. Mm, mm. I saw a piece of research yesterday that said that four-fifths, or this was in the UK, four-fifths of those asked had seen an effect or aware of the impact of climate change, but only half of people in the UK thought that we would get to, to net zero by 2050. I know by nature, Matt, you're a optimist, you're a glass half full kind of guy. If I asked you how confident you are today that we would get to net zero by 2050, where do you stand on that? I think based on today's actions, today's plans, today's targets, we are going to miss our net zero uh, goals. However, I am an optimist, as you rightly say. So I, I believe that we can accelerate. So then accelerate those new technology, technologies, the right support from governments to help people, because I think the, the public intent and awareness is also there now. You know, you go back a couple of years ago and it was still a you know, conversation mm-hmm. and it's still an education. Um, the fact that, you know, that we have in law net zero now in, um, I think it's at least a third of the world's population you know, governments that represent a third of the world population, it is law to get to net zero by 2050. So we're in a very, very good state from that perspective, but that's also like two thirds of the world's GDP. So there's a public awareness and intent. Governments are now taking action, but governments you know, typically are slow mm. and they have to think that long, long and big picture and activity. So do I feel that we have a plan right now that's going to deliver? No, I do not. However, I am an optimist, and therefore I believe that we will be able to accelerate and things will change you know, very quickly now as we progress. Um, the hardest bit for, for people is that, you know, that they believe it. You know, they believe in you know, sort of climate change. They believe in the, 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 the goals and the changes are right, but they also believe it's someone else's job to do it. Hmm. What we need to do is actually bring that back so that everybody realizes that everything they do um, has a direct role in actually getting to net zero. And... In layman's term, are there any examples you could you could give us as we as we try to um, think about how uh, green hydrogen can contribute to uh, all of our lives going forward? So, I think it's going to be invisible. So it's going to be people like you know people who work within supercritical within the industry and the sector, the people who are in industrial users, chemical users, who will need to make the transition. We will, you know, the answer for net zero, the answer for climate change is lots of things need to change. There is no silver bullet. Hydrogen is not the answer for all of it and not in any stretch of the imagination. So we need different technologies and different solutions, and they all need to be happening for help us get there by 2050. So to have to say that hydrogen is the answer is is wrong, Um, but it is part of the solution. And for us, it's about decarbonizing the production of you know, certain chemicals, ammonia, so that the ammonia process and therefore onto fertilizers, our primary sort of segment that uses fossil hydrogen today, if we can turn that into clean hydrogen, we can make a significant dent in the CO2 emissions and help us get to net zero. But it's still a small amount in the overall world's emissions of CO2. So we need to look at things like the industrial users. And so the, you know, the glass production, the, you know, the food, different food and drink sort of sectors, um, steel, we are seeing those industries already move towards different solutions. 
we have seen some pilots, some of the world's first in the UK, where in um, Northeast we have pilots of hydrogen being used in um, glass factories. And they're actually able to replace the fossil fuels entirely with hydrogen and very successfully. So we know they, we know the product works. It's really about can we get the technology and the production to scale to get it to the right price point that suddenly becomes, well, why wouldn't you use a clean version? But for me and you on a day-to-day basis, unless, you, unless you're one of those decision makers in the industrial, chemical or transport sectors, we're just going to benefit from cleaner air. What are you hoping comes out of COP26? What is it that you're hoping the world leaders and, of course, Britain as the host is able to achieve in those few short days? We need to agree a certain alignment because near-term targets will help drive near-term action. We need a good visibility um, so that people can actually sign up, countries and people can sign up to harder targets. And therefore, they have to challenge themselves, well, how are they going to achieve those targets? And so it, it can't be too long-term because too long-term people kind of, it's, it's too easy, too easy to keep them too far away. So if we can have alignment around some nearer term um, targets on significant sort of countries and pulling people together, um, that's a win. Mm. And these pledges have to be binding, don't they? I mean, targets are only effective if there's agreed mechanisms to measure, but also there is you know, some form of redress if they're not met. There's large parts of the world are taking these on board and actually putting it into law. So the law within within their sort of boundaries, and they're saying these are targets that are now being, um, as they adopted, but actually enshrined and therefore have to achieve. So that's something, you know, for me, that's a real sort of solid sort of level that when it becomes a, um, a, a, a government-based or country-based law, to actually achieve not just net zero, but particular targets within that and a glide path to get us to that sort of position, that, that's beginning, it becomes very visible, very accountable, and we can actually see and measure that across the world. Matt, you're prolific on social media. I read a lot of great stuff that you're up to on LinkedIn, and something that particularly caught my eye was uh, some decarbonisation work you've been doing with distilleries. Tell us a bit about that. We actually received a government grant to have a look at how we would fuel switch and fuel switch distilleries. I don't know if you know this, but you know, whiskey is actually very energy intensive. So it fits in that sort of industrial heat. They use heat as part of the distilling process. And whiskey uses about seven times the amount of energy to produce than gin. Um, so it is using a lot of energy to, um, to you know, a lot of fossil fuels today. Um, we looked at a solution where um, we would use um, local renewable energy. So there's a wind turbine on the um, distillery partner, Beam Centauri, that we were working with in Ardmore in Aberdeenshire. And so we were able to get real, real-time real data from that wind turbine, and we looked at a year's worth of data so we could see how often the wind did or didn't blow, and therefore how much hydrogen. So if we had our technology on site, we would, we would basically produce hydrogen and we'd store it on site to accommodate those days where the wind wasn't blowing and therefore feed it into the distillery for the distilling process, so directly into the, um, uh, it's, uh, the heating of the stills. And we looked at that, and as part of that study, we also found that we could utilize the distillery's wastewater. So if we can use the wastewater from the distillery, split that using local renewable energy. So imagine sort of extra solar panels on top of the warehouse, a couple of extra wind turbines at the top of the hill. 
we could actually create a situation where the distillery was only reliant on its natural resources for the energy for producing whiskey. So it's using local sort of local water as part of its main sort of um, feed from a whiskey perspective and wind. And we were utilizing the waste water from the distillery and producing that. So we, we did that study um, beginning of um, this year. Um, we're working with um, Beam Centroy to look at how we can progress that study and actually move to a demonstrator and a pilot to actually show that we could um, we could do this and they could transition away from fossil fuels to clean hydrogen produced and stored on site. Well, I think at the conclusion of this project, Matt, it's only right that the hunch goes on the road and we talk to you in the distillery. I mean, that that appeals to me on a whole lot of levels. We will certainly welcome you to the uh, first drinks that we have of that um, hydrogen-fired whiskey in the distillery. What is your hunch for a zero-carbon future? So my hunch is that the technologies that we need to have for a net zero future are not available to buy right now. And they are all available in labs and people's heads. And we need um, to find a way to accelerate those, to get them out there into the market so that we can achieve our net zero goals. Matt, where do we find out more about what you're doing with Supercritical? So from a Supercritical, you can go to our website, supercritical.solutions. You can follow us on there. You can find us on LinkedIn. Um, we are looking for different um, partners. Um, so we're looking for people that can actually, we can work with in terms of pilots, um, pilots within both chemical and heavy industrial sort of sectors. Um, we want to try and work with you now so we can develop the perfect that's going to work for you. Thank you, Matt. We'll be watching. Thank you for listening. Follow me, Mark Schmid, or our company, Simmons & Schmid, on LinkedIn or Twitter for news of our next episode.